0: One's your life. Would it kill you to pick it up? Help me get this thing out of here. No, no, we, just we just do Welcome to, to the 90s and beyond. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since the middle of the 1990s. 1996 is when I started and you can read all of my written work at that website quipster.net. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. The reason why I do this podcast, well I actually have another podcast called Around the World in 80s Movies and Now I'm doing a film review podcast specifically covering films of the 1990s, although it's a little bit more lax in terms of what I cover here because I'm also looking at films that have come out since the 1990s that were influenced by the 80s and 90s. But today's film is actually from the 1990s, even though the sequels, which I will cover here in the next few episodes, have come out in more recent years. The second film in the Jurassic Park series, the Lost World Jurassic Park it came out in 1997. It is a PG-13 rated film. It does have uh, intense sci-fi terror and violence. The runtime is about two hours and nine minutes. The main stars are Jeff Goldblum, along with Julianne Moore, Pete Postlethwaite, Arliss Howard and many others. Steven Spielberg returns as the director and David Kep returns as the screenwriter. Now, if you think back to uh, Michael Crichton's original 1990 book, Jurassic Park, unlike that one, Universal Pictures 1993 film adaptation was built with sequels in mind. You know, the, the novel wiped out the dinosaurs in the end of the novel, but Spielberg did keep them alive, as well as a few of his favorite characters that died in the Crichton novel, Ian Malcolm and John Hammond, and he deliberately included a shot in Jurassic Park of Dennis Nedry losing a can of shaving cream, cleverly hiding the embryos of several species of dinosaurs. That was actually Spielberg's back door that he was going to use to return dinosaurs for round two if they didn't have any other better explanations. Now, Spielberg would go on to produce any continuations of Jurassic Park. He was still bitter by the poor quality of the Jaws sequels. He wanted to keep his hand, keep his finger in the pie, so to speak. So, he hired screenwriter David Kep, he liked working with him, he wanted him to return to write the sequels, and they exchanged a few story ideas, but Kep's full involvement was pretty much paused because he needed to complete his directorial debut effort, The Trigger Effect, while Spielberg continued to lay the groundwork for future projects like Amistad and Saving Private Ryan and other things he was working on at the time. Now, when Trigger Effect went into post-production, Kep started putting together a Jurassic Park 2 storyline, and it was going to be based on a, a few set pieces that he and Spielberg were brainstorming with leftover ideas, primarily from the first film. compy attacks a T-Rex that would uh, go on the rampage, attacking people who would hide behind the waterfall. Those were going to be set pieces in the follow-up, and Kep wrote all of this stuff down while Spielberg started storyboarding from their ideas, and then Spielberg passed approved concepts to Jurassic Park collaborators, like production designer Rick Carter, who came back here, and illustrator Dave Lowry to start to begin work on the technical side. One of the things that Kep and Spielberg discussed as far as something to make it a little bit bigger and better than the first film was bringing a new kind of dinosaur, which would be bioengineered, kind of like a super raptor. Spielberg eventually killed this angle, feeling that this took it more in a horror direction than adventure or sci-fi. Although if you watch Jurassic World, you know that that idea did come back later. But they had plenty of dinosaurs still left to explore by the second movie. So they decided they were going to introduce the chicken-like swarming compies, Compsognathus, which were kind of like land piranhas, and bring a few of the fan-favorite dinosaurs they hadn't seen from the first film, like the stegosaurus and things like that. And so they started continuing to brainstorm ideas. They did have to take a pause, though, because one Michael Crichton, he acquiesced finally to requests by Universal, as well as Spielberg, to write a follow-up. So Crichton began to work on his next entry, and he entitled it The Lost World. And that title came from an homage to his favorite Arthur Conan Doyle novel, which came out in 1912. Crichton really enjoyed that novel from his childhood, Dinosaurs Existing Independent of Humankind. Crichton did change his mind on writing a sequel. He had never done a sequel before, because first because he knew there was going to be a film sequel, and they were going to make it with or without him, so better to have it made with some of his ideas. And because above and beyond this, he also received a lot of letters from kids over the years, younger adults especially, who decided that they were going to become paleontologists thanks to his work on Jurassic Park. So, Crichton, whose dinos perished at the conclusion of his novel, he continued the story here. By this new wrinkle, he would reveal that there were dinosaurs continuing to exist, but they were bred in secret on a previously uninhabited island, which was not discussed in the first book, near Isla Nublar called Isla Sorna. Now, Crichton set the Lost World six years after the events of Jurassic Park. Corpses of dinosaurs start washing ashore in Costa Rica, and that starts piquing the interest of this rich and eccentric Berkeley paleontologist called Dr. Richard Levine, who wants to observe these dinosaurs in their natural state to try to determine why maybe those dinosaurs from millions of years ago once went extinct. The origin of the corpses is determined to be from InGen Corporation's experiments from a few years prior Levine travels to InGen's secret site B on Isla Sorna, where these dinosaurs were being bred, and they've flourished there and now roam freely, independent of humankind. Unlike Isla Newsblar's dinosaurs, Sorna's does not have the lysine deficiency to shorten their lives without boosters. Now, Ian Malcolm returns here. He did die in the first book done by Michael Crichton, but obviously he was kept alive in Spielberg's movie, but Crichton rationalized that he could bring Ian Malcolm back because his favorite author, Arthur Conan Doyle, he killed Sherlock Holmes in one book and then had him return for many, many others after that. So Malcolm could also return. He had the excuse he felt he needed. Malcolm turned out to be only severely injured, restored to health after intensive rehabilitation for what happens here. Malcolm here is leading the party to try to rescue Levine, along with two child stowaways who are Levine's students. Animal behavior specialist Dr. Sarah Harding, Malcolm Axe, travels separately to the island, along with the first book's Lewis Dodgson. Dodgson is accompanied by some hired goons looking for dinosaur eggs for his rival genetic research company, Biosyn. Stealing T-Rex eggs, obviously, is going to end up pissing off its parents, and that sparks a battle, eventually, on Site B for survival between these humans and the dinosaurs. A lot more to the story than that, but since I'm mostly covering the movie and not the book, I won't get into more details. Kep did receive an advance of Crichton's novel. He read it four straight times. He started highlighting each time he went through compelling dialogue, key sequences, and anything that he highlighted all four times he felt like a a T-Rex attack on a trailer. That was going to be a sure indication that it definitely had to be put into the movie. The book, 400 pages in length, that was going to necessitate condensing. He started combining and eliminating characters and scenes so that they could use for the script. And Kip also interwove those early ideas that he and Spielberg concocted from the beginning without Crichton's involvement. Even though that was going to deviate from the book substantially, they had all of those ideas that they had already kick-started and production was already underway on those things, so they had to retain those. For the sequel, Crichton himself was never consulted during the production of The Lost World. In fact, Crichton wasn't even shown a script until it became necessary to get him to approve merchandising rights. Now, about a month after the book's release, in 1995, Spielberg, who had been kind of on the edge about whether he was going to direct or just produce the follow-up, he officially announced he would indeed direct The Lost World, and it would be his first directorial effort since 1993's Schindler's List. He had been taking some time off, the longest hiatus in his career and Spielberg's ultimate decision came from this feeling that he needed something familiar. He needed to shake the rust because he had spent so much time off. Schindler's List was incredibly draining. He needed to take a respite. But then he also spent a lot of time setting up the Shoah Foundation. He executive produced many films through Amblin Entertainment, Twister, Casper, among others. And he also was undergoing this very major project to get DreamWorks SKG, the studio, off of the ground, and that took up a lot of his time. But because The Lost World was set on a different island, Spielberg decided he was not going to shoot again on Kauai like he did the first film. He wanted to differentiate it in its look. They looked at South America, but that was quickly ruled out because there was going to be a long rainy season and it caused a lot of production problems. They considered Puerto Rico they considered Australia but then eventually New Zealand was selected as the top spot because it had a lot of very exotic looking volcanic areas and that to them represented the look of a lost world untamed by humans. However eventually New Zealand did lose a lot of favor Because it was very distant, for one thing. It was a little bit too isolated where they wanted to shoot. And that made it too difficult to try to find places to haul and store all of their movie equipment and to reside there nearby. So they started scouting different places, including American locations. Finally, they settled on the Redwood Forest areas of Northern California, near Eureka. In fact, one of the jokes that they had when they were making this film was instead of Costa Rica, they are shooting close to Eureka, California. This was a place they felt was actually a little bit more authentic because it's a place where dinosaurs actually have lived as compared to lush tropical islands. They tended to favor these forest areas in reality. Now, they had to contend with the state and federal protected areas of the park system, but budget deficits in California at the time prompted a lot more accessibilities to the film industry to shoot in those areas and in exchange for their participation Universal did agree to have their lead actors Jeff Goldblum and Julianne Moore appear in public service announcements to promote the California State Park system pickup shots were done from a distance they were actually done in the actual Costa Rica as well as Australia and some shots of New Zealand while set pieces were done on the Universal Studios lot Kauai did get used at least for the opening picnic scene Because the New Zealand location shoot did fall through and exteriors were done for what would be the city scenes toward the end of the film in Burbank and other areas around Los Angeles to try to replicate the streets of San Diego, which I'll get to in just a moment. Now, Spielberg originally devised a hunters versus gatherers concept for one key scene, but soon that extended as the foundation for the entire movie. He wanted to pit hunters out to trap these dinosaur specimens with the good guy group trying to protect these dinosaurs. Spielberg emphasized themes here about human greed, about egotism, about human desire for power, as well as the belief of many people that nature is here to serve the whims of humanity, rather than exist undisturbed by us. The dinosaur family theme would contrast to the humans, because animals, by nature, protect their own, while humans have become increasingly flawed in our evolution. We're dysfunctional in our families as time goes on. To avoid rehashing the first film deliberately, the Lewis Dodgson character from Crichton's book, as well as his goons, were replaced with newly-imagined characters, like John Hammond's avaricious nephew Peter Ludlow. There would be a a big-game hunter named Roland Tembo and his hunting party. Spielberg really wanted to emphasize a a safari-like atmosphere, and deliberately so because he wanted to pay homage to one of his favorite films, uh, a big-game hunter film by Howard Hawks from 1962 called Hatari. Ian Malcolm, he was the only character that Crichton decided to bring back to the Lost World book. He would be the main character in the film, and because actor Jeff Goldblum was so indelible in the Ian Malcolm role, in fact, really was the reason why that character was so popular, they had to secure Goldblum's services before they could really greenlight doing a full-on adaptation of the Crichton novel. Goldblum did accept... And he was very eager to explore Malcolm's more passionate, more emotional side, he didn't get to explore in the first film. And he provided a lot of the rationale for what the character Ian Malcolm does in the movie, including the reason why he wanted to return to the island of dinosaurs to begin with, even though he had such a harrowing experience the first time, because his ex lover, Sarah, is already there on the island and in immediate danger. Juliet Pinoche, by the way, was the first choice that. Spielberg had in mind to play Sarah Harding. She also was one of the main contenders to play Ellie Sattler in Jurassic Park, but she turned it down here for a second time. Binoche has gone on to explain years later that she considered Spielberg a very great director of men and of monsters, but not really of feminine parts. She didn't think that there would be a lot for her to do, and she joked Yeah, she would accept if she could play a dinosaur, figuring that was probably the only way it would be interesting to her. Spielberg then pursued Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore was somebody he had met years prior. He had seen her in The Fugitive, kind of a smaller role there, but he really liked her in that movie and decided to fly her out to have lunch with her. And he vowed during that lunch to cast her in a future project. And here, this was coming home to roost. Spielberg told Kep, while he was writing the script, write it specifically for Julianne Moore. After Moore accepted that this was going to be very physically challenging and that she was athletic enough to keep up with it, she was hired. She didn't even need to audition. Now, Spielberg also cast Vince Vaughn without an audition for cameraman Nick Van Owen. Spielberg screened a rough cut in 1996 for the movie Swingers, kind of a breakthrough role eventually for Vince Vaughn when it was finally released. And... Spielberg had actually watched Swingers because he needed to approve the use of the Jaws theme for this party sequence, and while he watched the movie, he really absolutely fell in love with Vince Vaughn's smart-alecky persona. Vaughn also happened to appear right after that with Spielberg's wife, Kate Capshaw, in this movie called The Locusts, and so Spielberg thought, you know, this is a guy that's really on the cusp of becoming the next Hollywood movie icon, so he definitely wanted to get him on board for this film. Although Sam Neill and Laura Dern were contracted to appear in a Jurassic Park sequel, Spielberg felt that their cameos might be a distraction. Trying to shoehorn them in when they weren't even in the book might cause a little bit too many complications, too many explanations there. Richard Attenborough, though, who was not in the book, in fact, he died in the first Jurassic Park novel, not in the movie. He returns here to shoot an extended cameo. Also doing cameos were Ariana Richards and Joey Mosello, who played the kids in the first Jurassic Park. Mazzello says that his cameo actually paid for his college tuition. Now, for supporting roles, Spielberg decided he wanted more impactful actors that best fit the characters instead of going for sheer star power. So Arliss Howard was brought in to play Hammond's nephew, Peter Ludlow, the heavy of the movie. The new head of InGen, who is out to exploit the dinosaurs in a way that his uncle came to realize was pure folly, Pete Postlethwaite, who was cast as big game hunter Roland Tempo after Spielberg, was highly impressed with his performance and very intense presence in the 1993 film called In the Name of the Father. During the promotional tour, in fact, Spielberg was so high on Postlethwaite that he called him the best actor in the world. Both Howard and Postlethwaite appeared in Spielberg's next film, Amistad. A little bit of trivia here, by the way. Kepp paid homage to this favorite Warren Zevon song of his, Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner. Roland Tembo, the the name Roland, comes from the titular name, of course, and the lyrics mentioned somewhere in the song uh, of Van Owen, which becomes the reason why he named Nick Van Owen. There was also a scene that was shot, but then deleted later, of Roland in Kenya that takes place at the Mombasa Bar that was inspired by a lyric in that song about a barroom in Mombasa. 12-year-old actress Vanessa Lee Chester. She was uh, somebody who Spielberg greatly admired in The Little Princess. In fact, during a screening of that film, he asked her for an autograph and then said he wanted to get her in a future movie. She plays Kelly Curtis... Malcolm's daughter, it turns out, who stows away on the expedition. Now, Chester got the role after auditioning with Goldblum, including a moment where she had to pretend that he, Goldblum, was a velociraptor, and he started chasing her around the room to try to gauge her reaction. Now, she didn't know that she was going to be playing Ian Malcolm's daughter. In fact, the role was supposed to be a composite character of the two kids in the novel who were not in any way related to Ian Malcolm, but they were condensed to try to keep characters to a minimum and because two kids on the island would too closely resemble the first film. But Kelly was initially written to be Malcolm's math student in the early scripts because they had removed by that point the Dr. Levine character from Crichton's novels, but Kep really struggled to try to devise any kind of rationale for Ian Malcolm teaching a grade school student like Kelly Curtis. He tried in scripts to, to contrive this premise where Ian Malcolm was performing community service to try to tutor students from any of these schools, but it just it just wasn't working very well. So Kep decided he was going to make Kelly, Malcolm's daughter, from one of his many failed relationships instead, and that would provide a thematic contrast to dinosaur families that, that was already part of the storyline for The Lost World. Spielberg was actually very hesitant that Ian Malcolm would have a black daughter But after he thought about it for a while, he did rationalize that, you know, really times have changed over the years, and he felt that audiences would actually readily accept Ian Malcolm having had an interracial relationship. And besides, Spielberg himself has two adopted African-American children, so he knows full well that this is just how families are nowadays. He also rationalized that it really fit the character. The proponent of chaos theory would himself lead a very chaotic and unpredictable life, so... Why not have it happen to Ian Malcolm? So, But they decided deliberately they did not want to get bogged down by the racial dynamics. They did not even comment on the racial component of the father-daughter relationship, except for one passing reference by Nick Van Owen about the lack of resemblance between Malcolm and his daughter. Now, more changes did occur as they were continuing to develop this film. In fact, the biggest one occurred two months prior to filming beginning. Spielberg happened to be at his home in the Hamptons. He was looking at his swimming pool. And then while he was looking at that pool, an image popped in his head that there would be a T-Rex bending down to drink from it. And he imagined, what if he were a little boy seeing this? The awe, the fright that a little boy might experience seeing that. And if he were looking at a a T-Rex in his backyard, drinking from his pool. And Spielberg really couldn't shake that out of his mind now, Kevin Spielberg had already talked about doing a third Jurassic Park film, and that was going to feature dinosaurs finally coming to human cities somewhere in the United States, but Spielberg had been struggling all along the way to find some sort of attachment to directing The Lost World. He really couldn't find it except for this one image that kind of inspired him. He was on the borderline to direct the second film. He knew absolutely that he was not going to come back and direct the third film, so Knowing that Roland Emmerich's Godzilla was currently in production and was going to be experiencing a 1998 release, Spielberg thought, hmm, it might diminish his intent to have dinosaurs destroy cities for the third entry if Godzilla beat him to the punch. And, well, oh, gee, it would be just so fun to have dinosaurs in the city that he decided to forego the intended climax for The Lost World, which involved a raptor chase through this abandoned village's laboratory compound that would lead to pteranodons attacking their escape helicopter, although that had already been reduced for money reasons to hang gliders that characters would pull from their backpacks. His new finale was going to feature InGen capturing dinosaurs to try to introduce into a theme park attraction stateside, and then they would somehow escape en route. The epilogue for the film, which would feature Hammond's funeral, kind of a throwing of his ashes into the sea by Ian Malcolm, that was replaced with a TV interview where Hammond is once again kept alive and he's advocating for Isla Sorna's protection from further human interference. Now, when Spielberg announced to Kep his intent to completely change the third act of this film, Kepp was not keen, really, to deviate from their original plan to slowly, incredibly build things up, and he also didn't want to impose this third act His wife was just five days due from giving birth, and he was really hoping for time to enjoy for a while as a new father. So this new third act meant completely rewriting the script on top of that. And it wasn't just adding a third act. He had to condense the prior two acts to try to make room for this big climax, all because Spielberg just had this sudden impulse to indulge his boyish wish fulfillment. So because of all of these changes kind of at the last minute, a few loose ends do emerge in the process. There was a dart gun. Actually, it exists still in the movie that kills kind of anything that it shoots. Introduced, it doesn't really get a big payoff in the film. And there was also that big raptor chase sequence and pteranodon attack. Those were diminished or stripped out entirely because Spielberg, he really wanted to save a lot of the wow factor now for his new big finale. He also was going to have raptors escape on the cargo ship, causing all kinds of damage that result in the T-Rex springing loose and then entering the city, while the Raptors are going to converge on a mini-mall and cause all kinds of problems there. But the Raptors, at the last minute, were pulled out of the climax, and it leaves the T-Rex's escape completely ill-defined. It looks like the T-Rex got out of its hold, did a bunch of damage on the ship, and then got back into the hold and closed himself off in it and then decided to come back out again somehow uh, once it hit shore now that t-rex escapes upon landing in san diego and begins terrorizing the public because it's in search of its baby that's being held in captivity somewhere nearby it hears its its noises and by the way san diego was chosen as the locale over the originally intended they were discussing actually having the dinos in Times square but San Diego happened to be the closest port of entry into the United States from Costa Rica, and it also hadn't really been used a lot in films. so this at least was something new. And um, San Diego also happens to be the home for major zoo attractions already. The San Diego Zoo, the Wild Animal Park, SeaWorld, etc. So setting up the debut of Jurassic Park there seemed to make a little bit more sense. By the way, some trivia here, the cargo ship that carries the T-Rex to San Diego is named the SS Venture that happens to be an homage to the ship that brought King Kong to New York. Now, if you watch this movie, you would think that the the scene of these angry T-Rexes on Isla Sorna pushing a double trailer off of a cliff, that ranks for most people, for most people who watch this movie, as the tensest sequence of the film. The actors here, they had to wear harnesses for about three weeks as the trailer was vertically dangled. They were drenched by a lot of simulated rain. That rain had to be freezing cold because they were concerned that the condensation would build up on the cameras. The T-Rex foot chase, which results in uh, the characters hiding behind this waterfall, that originally was supposed to have a mass of large cockroaches that come out and scare the humans, one of whom would walk a little bit too close to the waterfall and get eaten by the T-Rex. That was changed to a milk snake. It just was easier to shoot. One of the other big scenes of this film is when the velociraptors are stalking humans in long grass. That came from an idea that was born after Spielberg encouraged Kep to read a lot of hunting literature for this film. And to get more insight into hunting tactics, he should consult with a friend of his filmmaker, John Milius, in order to uh, give more background information. So one thing that Kep learned was that long grass in South America caused a lot of fear in hunters to go through because they were uncertain if there were any deadly jaguars or other kinds of animals that were lurking within. Now CG, which was very novel for Jurassic Park, had become very commonplace, especially among big budget releases. So Spielberg really wanted to push the limits for what could be achieved with visual effects. Nevertheless, in The Lost World, he wanted The Lost World to just blow all of those other movies away, including his Jurassic Park. So while Others were going completely with CG. Spielberg still felt that blending CG with practical effects with animatronics achieved a lot better results. Brought back was animatronics expert Stan Winston, industrial light and magic's Dennis Murin, and dino effects expert Michael Lantieri. Now, they knew that they were going to get criticized for just seeming like they were going to be doing more of the same, so they all decided that they were going to up their game. They were going to do things that nobody had done before in film. And one thing that they did to try to differentiate it from the first Jurassic Park was to highlight so many of the varied personalities that exist among the dinosaurs. And these new dinos would move a lot faster, they would be much more destructive, and they would make many more seamless transitions, not only with the animatronics, but also real world footage in ways that the audience would not tell the difference at all, whether they were seeing CG, real world, or animatronics. Now, Jack Horner also returned. He was an advisor on the first film for dinosaur appearances as well as their behavior, but he became a little bit more disenchanted with the way that dinosaurs were portrayed in The Lost World. Horner felt that Spielberg kept straying way too often into monster movie cliches, portraying T-Rexes as predators, for instance, or animals that carried out vendettas, which they would never have done in real life. Horner vehemently protested A lot of ideas that Spielberg came up with, like pteranodons swooping down on humans from the air, grabbing them by the claws or by their beaks and carrying them away. Horner was very instrumental in keeping a lot of that at bay. He might have won a few battles, though, but he ultimately lost the war because dinosaurs in this film appear much more like monsters than animals, something he was very much dead set against. The cinematographer Jurassic Park, Dean Cundey, He was supposed to return, but he was busy making his directorial debut, Honey, We Shrunk Ourselves, so Spielberg decided to hand the cinematography over to his Oscar-winning director of photography for Schindler's List, Janusz Kaminski. Because of the darker tone of The Lost World, Kaminski decided to emphasize keeping things very shadowy rather than bathed in light. He drew a lot of inspiration from the lighting of uh, Ridley Scott films like Alien and Blade Runner specifically. In fact, when Spielberg saw the work that uh, Kaminsky was doing, he said, wow, this really looks like Alien, which he absolutely loved, if for no other reason than it actually looked a lot different than the first film. But during the shoot, Spielberg did feel a lot of pressure, not only to complete this film, but with his new company, DreamWorks SKG. He also had the birth of his daughter, Destry, to contend with so spielberg took a leave of absence for about 8 days from the production shoot and in the meantime cap who had operated as second unit director throughout the making of this film he took charge for the first unit on two sequences ian malcolm who is on a uh, New York City subway train, as well as uh, the boat arriving at Isla Sorna. Those were specifically shot by Kep, although Steven Spielberg did give an assist because they had a satellite link-up that allowed Spielberg to remotely see through the cameras to try to make decisions while he was in the Hamptons taking care of his family needs. Now, due to the increased efficiency of Stan Winston's dino creations, and as well as Spielberg determining to avoid rehearsals because he wanted the actors to have the taste of words for the first time as they acted, The Lost World managed to finish six days ahead of schedule. Spielberg automatically, as he was in post-production, also started production on the historical epic Amistad. John Williams here returns to compose the score, highlighting a little bit more the terrifying safari-like nature. Rather than the wondrous sci-fi discovery of the first film, it's a little bit darker and it has a lot more drum rhythms to it. Once they had a rough cut, preview screenings started and, and they discovered quite a few complaints, especially among parents that felt that The Lost World was really violent, really dark and violent. Maybe to some a little bit too violent for a PG-13 movie, but the producers, including Kathleen Kennedy, they lobbied with the ratings board that this is a comic book adventure. Children fully understand that this is purely a fantasy. Dinosaurs are not going to come and eat them, so they were blessed with the PG-13 rating in the end. Now, box office-wise, once it finally was released into theaters, The Lost World It might have had kind of an uphill battle because it was competing with other action-adventure science fiction films full of cutting-edge CG ever since Jurassic Park was released in 1993, so the wow factor was gone for this second round. but the budget wasn't really bank-breaking. It was only a reported $74 million, just a few million dollars more than the first film, and that was thanks to generous back-end deals for both Spielberg and Crichton for their contributions here. And it also benefited because of its lofty box office expectations because other studios decided to steer clear of the Memorial Day weekend, which is when this film was released in 1997. It really had no competition and it scored a record breaking 97 million over the Memorial Day weekend. It failed to earn as much in the end as Jurassic Park. It made about $229 million domestically, altogether, $590 million worldwide. It only received one Oscar nomination, and that was for its visual effects. It did receive, unfortunately, the Golden Raspberry Award nominations, the Razzies, for Worst Sequel or Remake, Worst Screenplay, and Worst Reckless Disregard for Human Life and Public Property. So, kind of dubious distinctions there. Spielberg himself, he understands. In fact, he's been the most critical of The Lost World of anybody. He felt that maybe he really had matured out of this sort of filmmaking. He has expressed actually in recent interviews that he's, he kind of felt too confident, too cocky coming into this. That's why he doesn't really make really great sequels. And he loses that sense of hunger. And if that newness is not there, he really feels that the films are less challenging or less interesting to him. In fact, he compared the process of making The Lost World to to serving the audience a banquet, but also serving nothing challenging for himself. He got nothing out of it. He felt very little emotional connection to the material. So after Schindler's List, he vowed he was never going to follow up one film with another one just like it. So before he was done with post-production, Spielberg had already started turning his attention on Amistad as well as Saving Private Ryan, which he was definitely much more interested in doing. So yeah, in the end, you know, even the best of directors, even somebody like Steven Spielberg can make an occasional dud, especially if their heart or their minds are just not in it. You know, the first film really worked. It had a very intriguing premise, very realistic depiction of dinosaurs, but this sequel just really gets into dinosaur attacks, that monster movie mayhem, a lot of stunt pieces that that really seem more like they would belong in an Indiana Jones adventure or something. The uninspired premise, it doesn't capture any of the awe or the scientific plausibility of its predecessor. And even though, as with all movies, over time, especially if you see them as a kid, you're much more forgiving of these sorts of things. There are people who do champion The Lost World as a, as a film that needs to be re- reevaluated, especially in light of some of the more recent sequels. But personally speaking, being a Steven Spielberg film, it's still, I think, the most vapid of his films that he's ever done. And even though he's done an occasional misfire here and there, I do rank personally The Lost World as my least favorite of Steven Spielberg's films. I really didn't have a great time revisiting The Lost World as I did Jurassic Park, but you know, it's still Steven Spielberg, and it's still a dinosaur movie, and it's still within the same universe, so there is some appeal there, enough for me to give the film two and a half stars out of four, two and a half stars on my scale, means that it had all the tools, it had all of the talent to be a movie that would be recommendable to most people, but somehow it just never really quite coalesces into a satisfying whole, I think there's enough here to find some enjoyment in if you're somebody who's continuing on with this series. But certainly it's a big step down from the, the enjoyment that you might have received from Jurassic Park, at least from most people. And that's why I can only give The Lost World, Jurassic Park, two and a half stars out of four. Obviously, I'm going to be continuing this up with a film that actually does not come out from the 1990s, just a little bit afterward in 2001. The follow-up to... This film called Jurassic Park 3 that was not directed, by the way, by Steven Spielberg, although he did have his influence. In fact, just as many ideas and sequences that were meant to be in Jurassic Park that weren't used got used in The Lost World. A lot of stuff that was meant for The Lost World got used in Jurassic Park 3. And I'll go into that more fully when I cover that on the next episode. So I hope you'll join me for that. That probably will be much more interesting for me because I haven't seen that movie in a long long time please watch that if you want to keep up with the reviews if you want to write to me about your experience with the lost world or why you feel that it actually is as good as jurassic park for some reason or another at least one that deserves more than two and a half stars you can write to me you can find my contact information at my website that's a quipster.net q-w-i-p-s-t-e-r.net i also have links to my twitter feed my instagram my facebook page As well as my email, all of those ways are adequate to get in touch with me if you want to tell me anything about what you think of the show or this episode in particular. But until next time, thank you so much for listening and joining me as we travel to the 90s and beyond. Rolling the hitless Thompson gunner.